bed that he'd never seen before. And he said, darling, there's a box your side of the bed I've not seen before. And uh, she said, that's my own private box. Please don't ever look inside it. Well, you can imagine what happened when she went out shopping. He ran up the stairs, round the side of uh, her side of the bed, uh, looked inside the box, and inside found five eggs and twenty pounds. Well, when his wife came home, he said to his wife, said, darling, I've done a dreadful thing. He said, I looked in the box, your side of the bed. She said, I told you not to. It's your own stupid fault. He, he said, um, darling, why have you got five eggs? In a box, your side of the bed. She said, well, that's easy. Every time you preach a bad sermon, I put an egg in the box. But why is there 20 pounds there? Well, every time I get a dozen eggs, I sell them. (laughs) Would you like to pray with me that this won't be an egg talk? Should we we ask the Lord for help for me and for us as we listen? Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We pray that you'd be pleased to speak to us now from your word. Help me to explain it clearly and faithfully. Help us all to listen well and help us to be those who put your word into practice. And we ask it ultimately for Jesus' glorious sake. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians and I'm going to read the first chapter to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'll let you find it before I read it because there's nothing worse, isn't there, than going to a meeting and hearing someone announce the reading and then they start reading it and reading it while you're trying to find it. And um, when you've found it, they've finished reading it and you've neither heard it read nor read it yourself at all. So that was just fill in while you find uh, 1 Thessalonians. So if you're ever asked to read the Bible passage at church or at a meeting, let people find where the passage is so that they can follow it with you. Found it? Yeah. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Some months back, I was... uh, it was before the kind of light evenings and uh, the late uh, summer evenings. I was in our garden. Uh, it was pitch black and I noticed a cat sitting absolutely motionless. I went uh, closer towards it, went psst, psst, still no movement. I got closer and closer, psst, psst, no movement until I got close enough to see that in fact the cat was a watering can. And at that moment, I quickly looked around to make sure nobody had seen what an idiot I'd been making of myself. What it seemed wasn't what it was. Perhaps you've had a similar experience. 
the jacket with the designer label you were given for Christmas falls apart and turns out to be a cheap imitation. The expensive perfume you bought for your wife from the street trader turned out to have a foul-smelling odour. The coin that you received in your loose change was a forgery. The £20 note that you looked forward to spending was counterfeit. They weren't what they seemed. Imitations, fakes, forgeries, counterfeits are common. That's why the precious metal industry introduced hallmarks, so that people could be sure that their gold or their silver was the genuine article. Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is concerned to show the hallmarks of a real Christian, of a real church. Because the Christians living in Thessalonica, Thessalonica are the real deal. They show all the evidence, all the hallmarks that they are real. The engraving on them is of reality. And throughout the book, Paul wants to assure the Thessalonians that that is true of them, the real thing. So in chapter 1, we're going to see that that is the case. But to fill you in a little bit on the background, I'm sure you'll know the story so far. Back in Acts chapter 17, Paul visited Thessalonica. It was their first Christian visitor. He was their founding missionary. He was their pioneer evangelist. Paul, as he often did, uh, went to the Jewish synagogue first. And Jews became jealous and jealous that people were turning away from Judaism to the Lord Jesus and so jealous that they stirred up trouble for Paul and for anyone who became a Christian. Things became so dangerous that Paul and Silas had to escape the city by night. After three weeks, we're told, Paul was hounded out of town by a posse, rather like in a John Wayne movie. And Thessalonica is the shortest of all the New Testament missionary campaigns. Paul is there for three Sabbaths, and then gone. So the longest anyone in Thessalonica could be a Christian, by the time Paul left, was a three Sabbaths, we'll assume he arrived on a Sunday and left on a Friday, it's 27 days. Assuming they prayed a prayer of commitment on the first day Paul was there, 27 days is the longest anyone could have been a Christian before Paul leaves. There was no follow-up group. There was no Christian basics, no nurture group leaders. When Paul left them, he left them alone and left them to be persecuted. Imagine it for Paul. What was happening to these baby Christians? Had their response been genuine? Were they still Christians? What happened next? Well, we're not left to guess, because when we get to chapter 3 on Thursday, Friday, when we get to chapter 3, we'll discover that Paul had sent Timothy to find out how the Thessalonians were going on. And Timothy has now returned to Paul and has brought them an encouraging report. So, although they'd only had a short visit from the Apostle Paul, Paul is absolutely confident that they are real Christians. And Paul wants them to know that. That's why he spends so much time in chapter 1 telling them that I really do believe, I'm convinced that you are the real deal. He is convinced, verse 4, that they are those God has chosen. And he wants them to know that, I assume, because it's likely that in Thessalonica there are all kinds of people discouraging them. All kinds of people saying, you're not really going to be serious about this Christianity. <laughs> yeah, there was Paul, the pioneer evangelist. He was only with you for three weeks. Hit and run, Paul. Trouble came, Paul leaves. 
Are you really going to stake all your life on this Christianity, on this message, for something you've only heard about for three or four weeks? Now I take it there'll be all kinds of discouragements around. People in families where one had become a Christian, the rest of the family giving them a hard time. People in the workplace where one had become a Christian, the rest of them giving them a hard time. Paul wants to reassure them that they are the real thing. They are the genuine article. And I take it that would be a help to us. At a conference like this, this week, it'll be a reassurance, I suppose, to all of us that we're real Christians too. I take it that we are. I take it that we wouldn't have come on a week like this if we weren't. But it'll be an encouragement to us. Secondly, I think it'll be a real, really helpful for us be crystal clear what the authenticating marks of a real Christian are because there are plenty of counterfeits in our country today. Yet, even in our post-Christian culture, there are still plenty of people who've got all kinds of wrong ideas about what a real Christian is. So it'll be very helpful for us to get it crystal clear. And thirdly, it'll be helpful for us. Because if we're engaged in the work of the evangelist, knowing what the result that we want people to become will help us as we proclaim the gospel. Knowing where we're wanting to see people get to will help us in the journey of where we're taking people. Well, Paul in verse 2 gives thanks to God for these Christians. Uh, He'll do it again in chapter 2 and uh, verse 13. Paul gives thanks for these Christians. That's something we're weak at, isn't it? When we discover that people have become Christians, we're often not good at returning and giving thanks to God. It's encouraging that we should do that. But but the meat of the chapter is verse 4, where Paul says he knows that they are loved by God and chosen by God. That's what makes them the real thing. But what is the evidence for Paul that they are that? What's the evidence in their lives that gives Paul such confidence that he can declare verse 4, which I take it is what leads him to issue in the thanks of verse 2? Why is he so sure? Well, the answers come either side of verse 4, in verse 3, and then in verses 5 through to 10. Well, notice verse 3 first, and here's the first heading. We see the triad of ongoing Christian fruit. The triad of ongoing Christian fruit. Verse 4 explains verse 3. You can see it begins with a because. So, verse 4 is the reason Paul is confident of verse 3. So verse 3, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is giving continual thanks to God, verse 2, because of this triad of Christian fruit in verse 3. He gives thanks for their faith, love and hope. And those three ideas, faith, love and hope, actually run through 1 Thessalonians like letters through a stick of kind of Blackpool rock. Wherever you cut the book of 1 Thessalonians, you'll discover Paul is talking about faith, hope and love. He has heard from Timothy that they are people demonstrating faith, hope and love. 
And he'll call on them in chapters 4 and 5, which we won't have time this week to look at. He'll call on them to continue to demonstrate faith, love and hope. Because faith, love and hope are the triad of authenticating Christian fruit. They are the thing that leads Paul to be able to say in verse 4 that they are chosen by God. And that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? The seed of the gospel that is planted leads to people having faith, hope and love. But the striking thing is that faith, hope and love are all seen in action. Notice that with me. Faith is seen at work. Which in 1 Thessalonians is gospel work. So in chapter 5, Paul will speak of people who are hard at work for the gospel. In other words, people who believe in the Lord Jesus, people who have faith, will be at work for the gospel. It's a hallmark. And isn't it fascinating that you can see faith in God, which is directed that way, is lived out, is evidenced in labour for the gospel that way. So how do you see someone who has faith in God that way? It'll be evidenced in them being at work for God in proclaiming the gospel that way. Everyone who is a real follower of the Lord Jesus, everyone who is a real believer, is to be a speaker of the gospel. Now if you don't believe me, that is crystal clear from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. At the end of uh, Luke chapter 9, you'll remember that there are three characters who come to the Lord Jesus. And uh, one says, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, you're too quick. There's one who's too slow. He says, "Um, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. And doesn't say, then you follow me. He says, you go and proclaim the message of the kingdom. For Jesus, following Jesus and proclaiming the message of the kingdom are synonyms. Faith is seen in work. Closely associated, love prompts, notice, labour. Today we call a labourer someone who digs, someone who rolls up his sleeve, because the word means effort and toil. And we'll see that Paul himself was a model of labour on behalf of this church. And then, so love for the Lord Jesus prompts Christians to service, hard service, hard labour of one another. And then third, hope. Having a certain hope means what? Verse 3, the Christian endures, sticks at it, especially through hard times, through difficulty. A triad of fruit. Enduring labour and work our faith in God, our love for God and our hope in God, the vertical, all see themselves in how we live in the horizontal. Ongoing qualities of the real Christian. And that's clearly how the Thessalonians started off. Faith in God, love for one another, endurance, keeping going. That's how they started off. And that's how, how, as the letter moves on, Paul calls on them to continue. Because we all know, don't we, as evangelists, that the way you start out as a Christian is the way you go on as a Christian. That the way you start is the way you go on. 
Again, Jesus makes that clear in Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, he must follow me, deny himself, and take up his cross daily. In other words, you start off as a Christian by denying yourself and taking up the cross, and that's how you go on as a Christian. Paul puts it in Colossians 2 in a very similar way. Just as you received Christ as Lord, so continue in him. How does someone start out as a Christian? By receiving Jesus as Lord. How do you go on as a Christian? By living with Jesus as Lord. The way you start is the way you go on. Here in 1 Thessalonians, it's put as faith, love and hope. That's how the Thessalonians started out. And that's how Paul will call on the Thessalonians to carry on. I say it's important because I think there's sometimes a danger that as evangelists you think your job is X and then you leave the job to someone else to do a different job to what you've been doing. But actually the job isn't the same. The evangelist is the starter out of sure. But what must happen afterwards is the encouragements to continue in faith, love and hope. The triad of ongoing Christian fruit. But the bulk of the chapter is given to the model of authentic Christian beginnings in verses 5 through to 10. So notice verse 5 also begins with a because. In other words, verse 5 to 10 is explaining verse 4. How else does Paul know? What other confidence has Paul got that the Christians in Thessalonica are real Christians? That they are those who have been chosen by God? Well, notice from the way the gospel came to them, verse 5. So, why does Paul know that God has chosen them? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Paul says two things about how the gospel came. First, it came with words. And secondly, it came not just with words, but with power with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And my own guess is that in verse 5, what Paul says, with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, that those are three synonyms. That those aren't three different activities, but those are three ways of explaining the same reality that was going on in the Thessalonians who heard the Gospel. It could be that by, by power and the Holy Spirit, Paul means signs and wonders, But those little constructions, with, 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 makes it much more likely that Paul is saying that the power was the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit was the one who brought deep conviction. As you may remember the Lord Jesus said in John's Gospel, the Spirit's work is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The way the Gospel came to them. Notice the two components. It came with words and it came with power. Notice, therefore, there is an external word and an internal witness. The Gospel, in other words, came to them was both a human work and a divine work. The Gospel was spoken by the Apostle, but it was applied or appropriated by the Spirit. And can I say, my own view is in evangelism, both are needed. Now, sadly, there are plenty of people today who want to drive a wedge between the Word and the Spirit. But it seems to me in the New Testament they're married. They live together. They always work together, the Word and the Spirit. So why separate them? 
When Paul says that the the gospel didn't just come with words, notice verse 5, he is not saying that you can dispense with the words. Rather, he is saying you need something more than the words. But you don't need less than the words. I say that because I think we're living in a culture in England, certainly, where there are plenty of people who are thinking evangelism can be done without, without speaking. That evangelism can be done without any proclamation. Thinking that evangelism can be done just through living. It's called kind of presence evangelism as a reaction to proclamation evangelism. It can be, I've seen it in varying ways, I've seen it on the university campus. You're thinking that at mission time, as long as you give out pizzas, then, then that somehow is evangelism. That just makes people fat. I don't think you can get saved just by eating pizza. You need somebody to speak. Or in the uh, the local church I last served in, uh, the lady who ran the Mums and Tots group, she was a great lady, and she put in hundreds of hours into the Mums and Tots group, but she sincerely believed that as long as we acted kindly in our community and provided a service for young mums and toddlers, that that in itself would be enough to make them Christians. Now, I'm all for the mums and tots group at the church. As long as some of the mums who are around are Christians and are willing to get alongside the non-Christian mums and actually speak the gospel to them. Because the gospel must come with words. But it must also come with the Spirit's power with the Spirit's powerful work of bringing conviction into people's hearts and minds. And so, therefore, in evangelism, can I say there is therefore our work and there is the Spirit's work. And I think it's worth getting clear who does what. Because it's so often confused. So, let me say first, our responsibility is the speaking of the Word. And God's job is to do the powerful work of inner conviction. We do not have to do God's work for him. Indeed, we can't do God's work for him. It's silly to think we could do God's work for him because we can't actually change people's hearts, can we? The best we are trying to pull off when we try to do that is manipulation. We can't do it, and it's foolish even to try because... God's had so much practice at it. And he's very good at it indeed. Our work is to speak and his work is to powerfully convict. We do need to say something. Our mouths do need to be open. As Paul says in Romans 10, how can they call on the Lord if they have never heard and how can they hear unless someone speaks? So each of us here this morning is a real Christian because someone spoke the gospel to us. Isn't that right? Now, whether that was our parent, or whether that was a minister, or whether it was on a camp, as we've heard from our Polish brothers and sisters, someone actually spoke. Whether it was from an upfront situation at a meeting, or it was on our mother's knee, someone spoke. So our mouths do need to be open. But, of course, we do need the Spirit to be at work too. And can I say that my own view in evangelism is that getting clear who does what 
is challenging, humbling and liberating. It's challenging because it reminds us we do have to do our part. We've got to be out there, haven't we? I hope that one of the fruits of this week will be us more determined and with greater confidence to open our mouths. That the passion we were hearing about last night will cause us to actually want to get out and speak more. Secondly, it's humbling. Because it keeps us utterly dependent, doesn't it, on the living God to do his work. Which means I think all evangelists are prayers. Because you can't do the job of actually bringing someone to new life in the Lord Jesus without God's work. And so you will be utterly dependent on God, which will be evidenced in your prayerfulness. But thirdly, can I say, it's brilliantly liberating because the results are not in your hands. Whenever I get missionary uh, prayer letters and even evangelists' prayer letters, I'm not so bothered to hear about the response. So, I'm, let me, don't misunderstand me, I rejoice whenever I hear of people having become Christians. It's a great thrill to me. I want to rejoice like the angels in heaven rejoice. So, yes, do tell us the news of people being converted. But don't evangelists, Tell us the news with this kind of thinking that unless you've got results, we'll, then, then we'll stop giving you the money to keep you doing the job. Because actually what we want to know is that you've been faithful in doing your bit. It seems to me good evangelism is a simple equation. Good evangelism is non-Christians present and the gospel spoken. Let me say there's been plenty of... Uh, getting, getting the gospel spoken when there are not, no non-Christians, that doesn't seem to me, to me to be good evangelism. And we've all been to evangelistic meetings like that, haven't we? Haven't you as evangelists had that experience? You've rocked up at a meeting, there you've got your best evangelistic talk. Only <laughs> <laughs> and, and there... And then, and it's crystal clear as you look at all the people nodding as you're giving your talk, that everyone there's already converted. That's not good evangelism. And neither is it good evangelism to get a room full of non-Christians at the pub quiz and then not say anything. So good evangelism is non-Christians present and the gospel clearly spoken. So, real Christians bear the hallmark of how the gospel came to them. Someone did the explanation of the gospel, and the Spirit does his work, his inner work of convicting people. I was speaking to someone only uh, 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 last Thursday. This person has heard the gospel, I don't know, dozens of times. Intellectually, she says it's true. Can you believe that? She, be she would say, I do believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I do believe that he's one day going to return. I said, to her, um, I, I said to her, why haven't you become a Christian yet? She said, I don't want to. I said, whatever reason have you got for not wanting to? She said, I don't want to live my life under Jesus as king. I said, but that's stupid. Living under Jesus as king is the best thing ever because he knows the best thing for your life. He only wants the best for your life. So wouldn't that make sense to live for him as king? She said, I don't want to. I said, don't you realise that living with Jesus as king is the best deal because you get eternal life for all eternity. I said to her, I said, don't mind me asking, how much do you earn? She said, 
I said, go on, how much do you earn? And she said, okay, 42,000. I said, wow, 42,000, that's such a lot, isn't it? I said, any other benefits? She said, yes, I get, to, I get a free health care. I said, wow. 42,000 free health care. She said, oh, I, I get a company car. It's a BMW. I said, wow. I said, do you know what Jesus said? If you gain the whole world in the here and now but lose your soul, it's a bum deal. Not, for, not just 42,000. If you were to get the whole world, that's if you get all of... Lakshmi, whatever his name is, and all of Abramovich, and all of Richard Branson, and all of their wealth, and get it all in the here and now, but lose your soul. It's a bum deal. She said, I don't want to become a Christian. And I left a meeting with this woman and just went to my knees and realised there was nothing I could do to pull off making her become a Christian. It was entirely going to be the work of God. That's what I'm praying for her in that woman's life. The way the gospel came to them. Then I want you to notice, secondly, as we see the gospel coming to the Thessalonians, the way the gospel was received by them. Notice the second half of verse 5. You know how we lived among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. In what way? In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, Paul reminds the Thessalonians how, how he lived while he was there. And verse 6, they imitated it. But what did they imitate it? What, imitate, what was it that they copied? They welcomed the message with joy given by the Spirit despite suffering. Notice again there the balance between the human and the divine. If we've seen the human and the divine at work in the way the gospel comes to the Thessalonians, notice the human and the divine in the way that the gospel is responded to. It's responded to with joy, despite suffering, but joy given by the Holy Spirit. And that again is a hallmark of genuineness. When Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica in Acts 17, the church suffered. As soon as Paul's mouth was open, persecution begins. Within days of becoming Christians, the Thessalonians had started to get it in the neck themselves and Paul says they were joyful. Now that is not a sickly evangelical grin or a plastic smile. It's a real experience of joy that comes from the heart. A joy that can only come from the Spirit, and that's a hallmark of authentic Christian response. Because humanly, that's not what you'd expect to happen when the Gospel is proclaimed, and the result of it is opposition and persecution. So joyfully sticking at being a, 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 as a Christian, when within days you're being persecuted, that's not humanly normal. That is the work of the Spirit. And that's what we'll see in our evangelism too. New Christians do get it in the neck. You must have seen that in uh, your evangelism. The, the gospel is shared with people and then jibes come. Whether it's from family, whether it's from work colleagues, whether it's from friends. But the hallmark of being chosen by God, the hallmark of being a real converted person, is that there is a joyfulness 
given by the Spirit despite the suffering. Now, some of us will have had that experience ourselves of suffering for having become Christians, but we're still Christian and joyful at being Christian. That's the hallmark of being real. For some, it's a, a fairly minor level, but read evangelicals now, open the newspaper and read the World in Brief section and every month and you'll see that our brothers and sisters are being persecuted right around the world. Virtually every section of the World in Brief section of evangelicals now is how our brothers and sisters are being persecuted. But joyfully continuing as Christians. That's the hallmark of authenticity. That's the hallmark of being the real thing. Let me tell you about a wedding I conducted not so long ago. The groom's name was Roger. And I'd known Roger for a while. Not not Carswell, no. Uh, um, I'd known this guy for a while and uh, I turned up on the Friday night for the wedding rehearsal. And uh, the bride-to-be was there and the groom, Roger, was there. And Roger said, let me introduce you to my best man. And he introduced me to his best man and he said, this is my brother, now, this man he described as his brother was a man with dark skin and Roger got white skin. So I said, oh, you mean your brother in Christ? Roger said, yes, he is that, but he's actually my brother as well. I said, well, forgive me for asking, but how does that work? And Roger said, well, I grew up in Pakistan and um, my parents were missionaries in Pakistan. And, uh, and one, this young lad who was the best man, was a Muslim, but had converted to Christianity. And he was rejected then by his family. And Roger's parents took him in as their own son. He was older than Roger, and Roger grew up only knowing of this guy as his brother. This guy had a great smile on his face. And I said to him at the wedding rehearsal, I said, are you glad that you're Christian? And a big smile came on his face and said, there is nothing better. I thought, yeah, you're the real thing. To have been persecuted like that, to have been rejected by your family, and yet being full of joy, yes, that's the real thing. And verse 7, Paul says that that kind of response is a model. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's the model of how to receive the gospel, to welcome it with joy despite suffering. So, the hallmarks of genuine Christian beginnings, the way the gospel came to them, the way the gospel was received from them, and finally, the way the gospel rang out from them. That the Thessalonians had become Christians became known. The Lord's message rang out from you, verse 8. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. We don't need to say anything about it. Paul's, in fact, that what an encouragement. By saying we don't need to say anything about it, Paul probably means we don't need to correct it. We don't need to alter it. We don't need to change it. The response you have made to the Gospel really is the model response. And as they have responded so, the message that they have responded to is now ringing out so that it has become known everywhere. You see, when people become Christians, what they have done if they're truly converted cannot but ring out from them. 
And verses 9 and 10 tell of the authentic nature of what was ringing out from them. For they themselves, this is the people who have heard what is ringing out from the Thessalonians, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, we can do a little bit of Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple detective work from verses 9 and 10. You can work out what Paul must have told them, can't you? For them to have the response of verses 9 and 10. What must Paul have spoken for them to make the response that you read of in verses 9 and 10? Well, he must have told them that God is the only true God, mustn't he? If they're going to serve the living and true God. He must have explained to them that the Lord God is the only God. He must have explained to them that God is angry with idolatry. He's angry when people don't serve him as God. He must have, verses 9 and 10, explained that Jesus at the cross rescues us from having to face that anger. He must have told them of the resurrection, verse 9 and 10, mustn't he? And he must have told them that Jesus is coming again when he will be judged, but those who have faith in him will be spared the judgment on that day. Read verse 9 and 10 with our, with our detective hat on. And we can work out what Paul must have preached in that three-week campaign whilst in Thessalonica. The essential gospel facts. Those are the words that are being referred to back in verse 5. But not just that, not just is what they have heard is ringing out from them, but the way they've responded. There are three verbs, aren't there, in verses 9 and 10? Turn, serve and wait. I take it those are just Pauline synonyms for repent and believe. There's only one way to respond to the Gospel. It's just in the New Testament you get lots of different ways of explaining the same reality. It's a bit like taking a picture of the same object from different angles. The same reality is what's being looked at, just seen from slightly different perspectives. So repent and believe the gospel, which is how Jesus in Mark 1.15 says to respond, is, well here Paul describes it as turn, serve and wait. They're the same reality, just seen in slightly different verbs. They turn from idols. That means they repented of their past. They repented of the rebellion of not having the one true God as their God. They've repented of their worship of other things. Being a Christian is a turnaround. In other words, in evangelism, what are you hoping to see? People turning. Turning from something to something. In other words, it's just repentance. The turning isn't just away from selfish living, away from living with other things as God, it is turning from something to serve the living and true God. It means literally becoming the servant of the true and living God. It means coming under the ownership of the true and living God. In other words, in our response that we're calling people to in evangelism, we are calling on them to turn away from anything else that is the idol in control of their life. But we're calling on them to give themselves, to give possession of themselves to the true and living God, that is, to become his servant. Or elsewhere, to be his slave. You'll know that in the New Testament, everybody is the servant or the slave of something. We're either servants 
and slaves to an idol or we're servants and slaves to the living and true God. And the great irony, of course, in the New Testament is mankind, womankind, we are at our freest when we're slaves of God. To turn and to serve and then third, to wait. Is that the least stressed of the the three, perhaps, in our evangelism? But Christianity, becoming a Christian, is about waiting. It's about waiting for Jesus to come back. Yes, there is a brilliance of being Christian today. I've been a Christian for 33 years. I don't think there's been a single day when I've regretted having become a Christian. I don't want to go back to how I was before. I think being a Christian today is brilliant. But it's also about waiting for something in the future. It's waiting for Jesus to return. And on that day, the rescue from having to face the awful judgment of the anger of God against sin. Waiting. Of course, it means being expectant that something will happen and being patient until it does. And that's what we call on people. That's what we're calling on people to make as a response, isn't it? Not just turn, not just serve, but to wait. Expecting it will happen and being patient until it does. Some people are not good at waiting for things, are they? My mother, who's dead now, my mother uh, was uh, useless at waiting for Christmas Day. She used to feel everything under the Christmas tree. Not only that, but she would often unsellotate things, unwrap, have a look and then rewrap. She couldn't wait for, the Christ- for Christmas Day to come. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to stress how important this waiting is. We don't want people to give up. And in evangelism, we're calling on people to turn and serve and live the rest of their lives waiting for Jesus to come back. Endurance. Keeping going. Sticking at it. Turn, serve and wait. Those, that's what rang out from these Thessalonians. And that is what I think ought to ring out from everyone who's become a Christian. It ought to be evident, in other words, in their lives, that they have made a U-turn. It ought to be evident in their lives that they are serving now the living and true God. And it ought to be evident in their lives that they are waiting for something in the future. And that should ring out. The first church I worked in, as I said last night, was in Basingstoke, and it was a church that had uh, bells. And uh, we did a survey of the community uh, at one point to try and work out how we could better serve the community we were part of. And you know the response that came more often than any other was turn off the bells. People just didn't like bells at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. The bells, of course, were originally there to call the farming community around to tell them church was soon to start. Now the bells, of course, were just an inconvenience for people wanting to have a lie-in on Sunday morning. And so they said, could you please turn off the bells? This is a bell that must not get turned off, the person who's become a Christian. It ought to ring out from them. So how does Paul know that the Thessalonians are real Christians? 
How does he know that they have been chosen by God? How can he encourage them that in the face of people probably saying the opposite, that they are the genuine article and therefore should stick at it? What are we hoping for as we proclaim the gospel? Well, you are wanting to see verse 3 come into being, aren't you? The triad of ongoing Christian fruit. You want to see people with faith and love and hope, which will all be evidence in how we live in the horizontal. How will we know whether someone is loved by God? Verses 5 to 10. By the way the gospel has come to them, with words and power. By the way the gospel rings out, by the way the gospel's received by them. Joy in the face of suffering. And by the way the gospel rings out from them, that it's evident in their lives that they've turned, that they are serving, and that they're waiting. And when we see the triad of ongoing Christian fruit, and when we see the authentic hallmarks of gospel beginnings, then we can be confident that someone is the real thing, the genuine article. And we can then come and give thanks to God and remember them in our prayers, thanking God for the work that he's done in them.